Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. I am so insanely psyched for this episode uh, with my conversation with Dave Schools, the one and only uh, of Widespread Panic. I'm just so happy to be here. If you're here for the first time joining Roadcase, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Roadcase community. So happy to have you here. If you're a longtime listener and a repeat listener, thanks so much for your support. I am so psyched to have you back and can't wait to share this episode with you. Uh, as I like to do, I really want to remind everybody to support Roadcase in any way you can. It's free and easy to do so. Uh, you can follow us on the socials. That really helps out a lot and keeps you in touch with what's going on at Roadcase. You can follow us on the social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The handle is at RoadcasePod. You can follow us there. Uh, you can also get involved with the Roadcase community by shooting us an email. We're at info at RoadcasePod.com. You can send us questions, concerns, comments, suggestions for guests. I would love to hear from you. Thanks to everyone that sent in emails really appreciate it and uh, love to hear from everybody. Uh, you can visit our website, www.roadcasepod.com for more information on the podcast. Uh, also a great way to support Roadcase is to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. So you're, if you're on Spotify, see that little box that says follow just hit that. You'll follow Roadcase. You'll get updates when new episodes come out. And uh, if you're on Apple Podcast, uh, up in the right-hand corner, there is a little checkbox uh, that you can hit, and you'll find out when new episodes are released. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, if you could rate and review Roadcase, that would be amazing, and I really appreciate uh, that help. And uh, it really helps out the, the podcast a ton. You just scroll down a little bit to that place, see where it says rate and review right on the page you're on right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, there's a bunch of stars there. Just hit a bunch of them and uh, throw down a review if you're so inclined. I'd uh, really appreciate that. So I am really psyched to have spoken to Dave Schools. Uh, he's just an amazing human. Dave was kind enough to join me from his home in Sonoma County in Northern California. As you may know, Dave plays bass in the band Widespread Panic, who have been playing music together for almost 35 years, released their first record in 1989. They are just stalwarts of Southern rock from Athens, Georgia. Among other amazing shows that Widespread Panic has played, uh, they've actually sold out Red Rocks for a record 60 times. Uh, their show called Panic in the Streets in Athens, Georgia in April of 1998 uh, was seen in person by over 100,000 people. People still talk about that show, uh, and it's uh, there's even been a book written about it. Just amazing, speaks to sort of the grassroots uh, love for this band in their hometown and also around the world. Still today, Dave has experienced... Um, much tragedy, unfortunately. Uh, but at the same time, he's kept this um, a great 
open soul and uh, simply got a phenomenal attitude of light, love, um, and vulnerability. Uh, perhaps explains why Panic is so involved in nonprofit efforts. Um, their Tunes for Tots organization has benefited school programs in economically challenged areas and has raised over $2 million since it began in 2005. Uh, the band just played a Tunes for Tots show in the fall at Mission Ballroom, uh, which was an extraordinary event. Dave also works as a producer. Uh, he recently completed a tribute album for the late Neil Casal called Highway Butterfly. Neil was, of course, of Circles Around the Sun. Highway Butterfly features a slew of amazing artists paying tribute to Neil, uh, whom we lost to suicide, sadly, in 2019. Um which really underscores the importance of mental health overall, but also as a focus in Dave's life. Of course, Dave's love of music is huge. That's so evident in everything that he talks about and he says, and I just absolutely love uh, not only his devotion to music, but his devotion to classic rock and also just all forms of music. It's what he loves. It's what he breathes. It's what he wants to do. Um, so in addition to producing, which he has gotten into uh, a ton over the past couple of years, uh, he's also touring again with widespread panic. They just played in um, in Mexico, uh, their panic in La Playa festival and uh, panic is currently out on the road doing select dates in the south. And I'm really psyched for their five night run at the Beacon Theater in uh, late July. They're also doing four nights at the Fox Theater in Atlanta in August as well. And they've got a bunch of other dates in 2022 scheduled. So check the website for all those amazing dates. Uh, there's just so many exciting things going on with widespread panic, but uh, I just really loved this conversation with Dave. Uh, he's just a really extraordinary individual. I want to thank everyone for your support. And I want to send a special thank you to Dave Schools of Widespread Panic. Uh, this is a really uh, in-depth conversation. And I got to tell you, we just get and we go into some amazing directions. Um, and uh, it's just uh, just really Really, really, uh, really, really fun. I had a great time, and I know that you'll really enjoy this. I want to say that we just jump right in. Uh, Dave was just raring to go, ready to talk from his house, and we just jump right in and talk about the most uh, California of all events, the earthquake. So here's me and Dave talking on this episode of Road Case, and here we go. So, yeah, were you one of those guys, like, non-Californians that were like, ah, earthquakes, don't know? I wasn't really concerned with, like, the earthquake phenomenon. I mean, when I was living with a former girlfriend out here, there was a, a, a slammer. You know, there's three kinds. There's, like, the, the trembler. Yeah. And then there's the one where the ground's kind of liquid and it's, like, yeah, undulating the waves. Yeah, slow rollers, yeah. And then there's the one that's, like, a garbage truck crashed oh, into the man. side of your house. Those are and the scariest. One of those happened and it like threw me out of bed. And, you know, of course, <coughs> she being a native was just like earthquake slammer over, forget about it. And I'm laying right. in bed going, I need to got any Xanax, you know, <laughs> I mean, I know right? it's unnerving. Once I went through that and, and of course we had one here and my wife just, she sleepwalked out of the bed 
stood in the door jam and said, earthquake. And they came back <laughs> in. Um, what gets me is the fire. You know, the fire yeah, fear yeah, yeah, out yeah. here is rough because people came out here to live amongst the trees. I love trees. I love forests. I love the way the sunlight filters through the leaves. Mm. I love the sound of the leaves when the wind blows. I mean, we're not, you know, it's not like I'm Tom Bombadil from The Hobbit, you know, <laughs> living in a tree. But I like forests and I like trees and I like the way the air is. Uh, but to create 100 feet of defensible space around your house means maybe taking away a 40-year-old Japanese maple that was planted when the place was built. Right, It is right, beautiful. Right. And I, I hate to do that. Uh, we got a metal roof. Um, fire's the main concern, really. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. We I, had a, I skipped that. I just <laughs> went to the traditional stereotype anti afraid of earthquakes, which does keep some people out of California if they're not if you're not from there. Yeah, and we're definitely between the fault and the ocean. So I don't know if we'd become the California islands or just <laughs> fall into the sea and all of a sudden people who live in Sparks, Nevada have beachfront property. I don't know. We'll I don't see. Know. I'll go with Sonoma County as being beachfront property. But uh, this is uh, actually timely because the February 9th uh, is the anniversary of the 1971 earthquake in Silmar down in, in, in California, uh, in Southern California. And I experienced that as like a nine-year-old. So not, tell it was, me about that. It was crazy. It was insane. Well, I was little scared the living shit out of me as a child. It was a really big earthquake, like a 7.4. And I was in the same, I was in the, yeah, long for a long time. Like, I guess, I mean, it was a long time over 50 years ago now. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those that just didn't stop and didn't stop and didn't stop. And you know, that catches you by surprise. The terrifying part is, and what really gets into your gut and feeds the fear is after it, right? All the aftershocks, there are inevitable aftershocks. And even that first aftershock can be a 5.0, which is bigger than any earthquake. Many of us even have ever experienced or know anybody that has experienced an aftershock of a large earthquake is a massive earthquake in, in itself. And those yeah. start continuing and you know they're coming and you're already afraid because you already had the big one. And then there's all these little ones that just keep occurring for days. And that was unnerving. And it really shook me to the core as a kid. Like that was the first time I really felt like full on fear. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no control. And, and if you want to get down to the, uh, you know, which, which button in your lizard brain does it push fight or flight? Well, yeah. neither of them are really applicable because right. where, where are you going to fly to? Yeah. Some exactly. other place it's liquid earth. Yeah. And it's you just got to sit there and deal an with it. Yeah. You just have to sit there and deal with it. Um, well, this has kind of evolved into the disasters podcast. It's a disaster prevention, let's call it. That's a better way to do it. You know, <laughs> there was a tsunami warning uh, like a week or two ago on oh, the right, Pacific right, up right. here because of uh, what was it an undersea volcano somewhere? Oh in the yeah, Pacific? in Tonga. Tonga, that's right, right. And, right. and I got so many. Uh, you know, I always get people that are during fire season or you know it, something makes the national news, and I get a text from a friend on the east coast. Well. I guess the tsunami warning made the national news. And, you know, my mom's like, what do you, what do you do with a tsunami? I'm like, it's not going to happen. You know, it's right, just, right, and if right. it does, it's not going to get all the way into where we are. I mean, we're a good 15 miles from the coast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it more affects like the flat land when you have beach and flat property, then the, the high tide affects it. There's cliffs down there and everything that would just, it would just have been another wave potentially, but still, yeah, we know the effects of a horrible tsunami on a population. Yes, we do. Yes, wow. we do. Terrifyingly. So, geez. Um, 
Well, since you're talking about your home, I wanted to talk briefly about your incredible work as a producer. And I, I know you've been, I've, I've, I've heard you talk about the studio that you've created that, uh, uh, is that in your house or is that a separate property? Is it just nearby or what, what is that? What does that kind of look like? Well, uh, you know, I used to have a studio in the basement of my house in Athens, Georgia, and, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of work was done there. And when I moved out here, it was, you know, with a woman I intended to marry and I did so. And, uh, although we looked at plenty of properties with potential, you know, second buildings, right. I just didn't want it on my property. And so for about the last 10 years, my go-to studio was one called Prairie Sun. That's in mm -hmm. Utati, a town about 20 miles South of here, mm -hmm. where it's where Tom Waits recorded bone machine and mule variations. And, wow. you know, I produced uh, Andy Frasco and, Mm. Uh, all kinds of records, or I'd work at Bob Weir's place, TRI, down yeah. in San Rafael, recorded Kim Ock and hardworking Americans there. But at three in the morning, even 20 minutes up a uh, foggy highway seems like a long drive. And this new situation, which we're calling Space Camp, fell into the hands yeah. of my engineer, Jason Reed, and myself. And uh, it's uh, it's Kitaro's old house. Mm -hmm. And he built a secondary building. and built a world-class personal studio in there. Yeah. And at the beginning he had a divorce and he decided before COVID to move back to Japan. They got kind of trapped there because they had pretty uh, stringent lockdown procedures. Kitaro is the, I'm sorry, is the percussionist? Kitaro was a, a, a progenitor of new age music in the eighties. He kind of created and the, Mickey Hart worked with him for a little while. Mickey right? Hart worked yeah, with him. Yeah, They're yeah, both. Yeah. That's uh, how I, that's how I knew that name. In fact, uh, Kitaro has a beam in his studio ah, okay. there you longer go. than the one Mickey has. <laughs> Uh-oh, hey, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did turn up some hard drives that said Heart Kitaro on them. But uh, basically, he's got all the, uh, these amazing synthesizers and keyboards and a world-class setup. And, and we just we swapped out the Neve console for our Studer console. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, Jason and I are both big collector nerds. And between the two of us, we had enough like artist inspiration oriented things like guitar pedals and amps. And Jason had a lot of synths and noisemakers and outboard gear. And we've just been working there. And that's four miles from my house. So uh, okay, even if it is 3.30 in the morning on a foggy night, my car would probably drive itself home. It's made that trip. So <laughs> there you go. Well, you probably could get a car that could do that pretty soon. Um, yeah. Is that a, um, <clears throat> did you build that, you built out that space yourself? No, it was Kataro's recording studio. Ah, okay. Oh, he, all he'd right. He'd work right. there and, and he'd rehearse his, uh, so you were all, it was all band. set. That's great. Yeah. We just integrated our well. stuff. It worked out really well. And, you know, he'll take some of the stuff. Hopefully he'll let us keep the ARP synthesizer and the, you know, the Yamaha C7. It's a beautiful grand piano. And, uh, -huh. uh but, you know, it's, I've got a lot of stuff. I have a Mellotron and I have a synthesizer that used to belong to Brent Midland and oh, plenty, wow. plenty of basses and, and all kinds of fun stuff that uh, I've collected over the years when I'm producing to sort of throw at an artist when they're feeling a little stuck. Huh. Um, or maybe they're just like, I got the part, but I'm not happy with the sound. And I'll be like, well, here, take this little pedal and plug it in and uh, right. see if you can find a sound that makes you feel something yeah um, yeah 
So that's just, it's like a box of toys I carry around, but it's helpful to have in a studio. Yeah. You've always been involved in, 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 in producing albums. Um, <clears throat> and you've, you're, you're incredibly profound with all the side projects that I really love Stockholm syndrome and especially, uh, hardworking Americans. And I, speaking of Stockholm syndrome, I was just listening to, I love when I discover new covers that have been done and people that love songs that I had no idea. I know I had no idea these songs had traction. The, um, climax blues band couldn't get it right. I'm like, oh. Oh, man what i used to listen to that song I, I was in love with that song and i was obsessed with that song in the late 70s me too I, you know I, it's like, like and and you play that song in a bar and everybody knows it but yeah. you could make some money seeing who knows who did it because nobody knows it was climax blues band i i think i actually bought the entire album because of that song <laughs> I wonder, was it any good? Because I've only heard this song. I hardly remember, except for that song. <laughs> I think we, we might have gotten a nice note from the publisher after yeah, we right. recorded it and had it all, you know, sewed it up all right. But it's funny because, like everybody knows that song, Jerry Joseph had a particularly um, piquant reason for wanting to do that song. Oh. Uh, because apparently for a short period of time, his dad was a scientist that dealt with like, uh, he was like a marine biologist scientists and and jerry would travel around the world with his dad um, mainly on a campaign to uh change the kind of nets they fish for tuna with because it wow it brings in all kinds of other it brings in dolphins and everything and, and right right yeah it's just like you know there are better ways to do it yeah and i guess they live for a while in new zealand or something and and jerry wound up starting a fight with some maori guy <laughs> and walloping him and he wound up in the juvenile detention center for a short period of time and <laughs> i guess one of the trustees had a little portable cassette or your portable radio and, and cherry's like that song just would drift down it was i guess it was a hit at the time or something and yeah 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 and uh he just loved it and that's the story he told on his campaign to get the band to play it and i was like all everybody said we love that song let's just right they probably would have done it without the story, but great story, Jerry. Thanks. <laughs> you should have him on your podcast. He will He will I would, deliver some amazing stories. <laughs> I would love to have him on. Uh, if this goes well, hopefully you'll, you can uh, put in a good word for me. <laughs> Going well so far. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> That's my next question, Dave. Oh, man, I love you. Um, so uh, just to talk about your band, Widespread Panic, that we all know and love, um, you guys we're off the road for a while, like everybody else. What was it like to kind of get back out there just having finished kind of a fall, uh, basically a fall run. And, um, uh, what was it? Um, what was it like? What was the effect on you for having toured for so long? And despite the fact you've got so many other interests in producing efforts and, uh, not to mention the Neil Casal tribute album that I'd like to talk about as well and get into that. Um, what was what was the effect of being off the road for quite a while for someone that's been on the road for over 30 years? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've been super busy. And although over the last three years before the pandemic, mm. panic had, had changed our touring model. Mm. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was like we built up to like 200 plus shows a year, mm -hmm. 14, 16 week long tours. Yeah. And then, you know, slowly over the course of probably 20, 25 years, got it down to 80 or 90 shows a year, three trucks, three buses. Uh, and then we went through some big changes. We hired Dwayne Trucks permanently. Um, our Athens manager, who had been our first manager, decided he was ready to retire. 
And John Bell decided that uh, he wanted to adjust the touring model um, to play whatever amount of shows it took to basically make the same amount of money and keep all of our people insured and employed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that went down to like 25, 35. And we liked that model. It was a model where we'll shoot out to a town we love, like, I don't know, let's just say St. Petersburg, Florida, Mm -hmm. and do three shows outdoors in a shed. And that would be it for that month. And, Mm. And it was going really well, but I was still really, really busy with all these projects, I'd go to Nashville and record a band, or I'd go to LA and record a band. I'd go to Portland and record a band. Mm. I'd take time off here and record a band. And I was at that point saying to myself, I need to take six months off, Yeah, you know, and then just make the only thing I do, the panic shows that we would play, which would be about 18 shows. And you'd take six period. months off. And during that time, the only thing you would do is were panic shows. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'll uh-huh. never stop doing whatever panic needs me to do it's whatever we want to do it's it's always been our game Mm -hmm. you know and so we dial the rules in yeah uh, yeah, as a group but i thought i wonder what it would be like to you know spend a lot more time at home and feel that feeling not retire just take some time and so covid kind of made that decision for me right right and you know i mean barring like the getting used to it and i don't you know, I'm sure you've probably heard this before if you've been doing this podcast for three years, right? Uh, um, yeah, for well, or a year, but this is uh, over like interview 120, basically. I've talked to a lot of people. Great. So I'm sure you talk to some road dogs that are like, the hardest thing about being on the road is coming off the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're on this amazing amusement park ride with all the highs and lows and ups and downs. And, yeah. uh, and then it stops and you're home. And if you're married, that's an extra dimension of you know, a a shift in both people's dynamic. It's never easy. Um, I've gotten pretty good at dealing with it. And this was no exception. It was just like, other than the weirdness of a global Mm. pandemic, right? and however your state wanted to deal with it, and then whatever alternative facts were coming down the pipeline from the orange-haired moron in DC, (sighs) uh, it was just like, okay, so this is kind of what I was planning on, except now Mm. there's not even any panic shows. Yeah. 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 So I was fine with it. And my wife and I were kind of homebodies. We got a couple dogs. Once they unwrap the yellow caution tape from the park here in town, I take the dog for a walk every day or I take him out to the beach and walk Mm. him there and, uh, you know, got an instant pot and learned some, (laughs) I added a couple of layers to my cooking skills, you know, started like, we're lucky enough to live here where they grow stuff for the rest of the world. And, you know, so it was just like, wow, this is, I'm so used to eating out of chafing dishes in, in catering <laughs> holes. So I tried cooking and it's good for me because my wife's vegetarian and I'm not. So it's like, what can I do that I can add protein add to? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that was it. And I, to really get back to your question, and I'm sorry for being long winded. No, but, please, uh, please just, you do, you do you, Dave. It was so great when we got back. And the first show we did was a benefit in Denver for our Tunes for Tots charity. Mm -hmm. And then we did our three Red Rock shows. um, And we convened in Athens, Georgia, and set up on stage at the Georgia Theater to rehearse. Oh, right. We had like three, four days of rehearsal there. And I got to catch up with my friends, masked or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we did the shows. And then we did a couple more outdoor shows. And it was great. And everybody's feeling 
you know, feeling the love of each other and, and so happy to be playing and doing what we're doing. And, and then we try to move it indoors and uh, then a couple guys get COVID and we right. have to postpone more shows and kick more shows down the road. Ugh. And I was like, all right, well, I guess this is just what we're going to have to deal with. And then I got to tell you that when we yanked our new year's shows because of Omicron mm. and our makeup, I mean, how many times can you make up makeup shows? Right. Well, right, COVID right, is right. testing, testing us and our fans. Yeah. Um, then I got, I don't do well with Christmas. I was traveling. Uh, new year's isn't my favorite. I call it amateur night. Yeah. But, yeah. What do you mean when you say you don't do well for Christmas? You mean you I'm, don't like to be home or you don't like to not be home? I I guess I'm always just trying to capture the magic of my childhood Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And, and the high just, expectations that then can kind of get disappointing, right? Yeah. And also exhausting because I really appreciate what my mom and dad did to enable a magical Christmas for a child mm. because to try and enable that for oneself doesn't yeah. really work, but it's easier when you have, you don't have kids, right? It's easier no. when you don't, when you have kids and then you're, you know, you, then you can create that same magic. That's, yeah. I got nothing. I mean, my dogs don't appreciate the magic. They're just yeah. like, huh? What is that? <laughs> but that was, why the are one you putting that, that fucking hat on me, dude? <laughs> exactly. Antlers. I don't have antlers. What the fuck? But that got me that, that was like, that kind of snapped me. And I just went real negative and dark. Mm. Um, for a couple of weeks, mm. uh, but then we went to Mexico last week and, oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd that go? Uh, it went great. I, you know, I think they, they got a couple people tested positive trying to get out of the resort when it was over in your group, uh, not in our group, just in the, oh, just that amongst, you heard of like amongst the fans and stuff. I'm going, I'm going down, uh, March one for, uh, one big holiday in my morning jacket festival. Right, right. So yeah, that's one of my concerns is like getting out of there, you know? So, well, yeah, that's a the concern of that's a common concern with almost every 99% of the attendees are like, well, what the fuck happens? Yeah. You got to know, and you got to know what they want from you. And yeah. Uh, luckily uh, our friend at the CDC was like, frankly, for playing outdoors at a, at a resort, it's at the hard rock, right? The, uh, no, this one's at moon palace. Okay. Uh, whatever they're doing, it's probably better than what people are doing in the States. Yeah, and he yeah, said yeah. that it's 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 safer than playing a show here, right? So, right, right. You know, we we um, took the care we took. We're pretty bubbled, and we went and we played, and it felt great, and we had fun, and uh, you know, we got some indoor shows coming up in a week in right, South right. Carolina, and then some in Vegas in March, and hopefully this thing burns itself out, and we just, I guess, we learn to live with it. You know, I, I yeah, I think we do. I mean, I'm not a medical health prognosticator, but. Uh, yeah, I think it just becomes fades to the background and becomes a concern, you know, now that the, the quarantine levels back down to like five days, I think now, and people aren't necessarily getting that sick if you're vaccinated and boosted. Um, yeah, it's just, um, you know, now we're living with the specter of, well, first of all, the cases are incredibly high in this country. And even if they went to level four, they've gone, it's gone to a level four alert in Mexico. But if you read between the lines, that's still way fewer, far fewer cases there than there is in the United States, even now, as we trend downward. Right. It's well, you know, it's been, I've been shocked and I've been surprised pleasantly, um, you know, but just in real life, going home to Virginia for Christmas, Mm. Uh, my mom asked me to stop on my way from the hotel room to pick some 
stuff up at this preppy little market. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little independent market that has cool stuff and it's in her neighborhood. And I, okay. I walked in fully masked up. And the first person I see when the doors open is the guy at the deli counter without a mask on, like the guy cutting the deli meat. <laughs> yeah. And then I slowly noticed that maybe 30% of the employees have masks and maybe 50% of the clientele were mostly little old ladies and little old men uh, <laughs> right. have. And I'm just like, what the heck? And so then I, I couldn't find something. So I go to Publix, which is yeah. a national chain yeah. with over a thousand employees. Everybody's masked up. Um, so, okay. Obviously there's no mask mandate here unless a corporation deems it. So then I'm like, well, my mom's 91. She's vaxxed, but not boosted. Maybe I should get a rapid test or two. Mm-hmm. None to be had. And uh, then, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. literally that week, Omicron spikes mm. in Virginia. We pull our New Year's show. And as I'm waiting on the airplane to go back to San Francisco instead of Atlanta to play right. New Year's, I he see the crawl go across the bottom of the screen that the you know state of Virginia has reinstituted a, a mask mandate. Mm, right. like, well, all right, right, got out of there by the skin of my teeth. Yeah, there you go. I mean, a lot of people don't wear masks. I think there's there's a lot of um, people that don't feel that there's consequences for them other than the five days. But you're a professional musician. You've got responsibility to others. I'm. I'm I, I'm a podcaster. I need to go to shows. I don't want to be sidelined for five days. I mean, it's a small period of time, but I don't want to be careless about just okay. I'm I'm okay with I, if I get it. I just I don't want to be. I, not that's okay. not my personal headspace. I mean, there's still you know <clears throat> statistics skewed closer to survival. Oh, and absolutely non hospitalization. But I don't want to. I've never been lucky enough to win a lottery. Uh, <laughs> but this isn't one I want to win. You right. know, being the the rare guy that gets hospitalized because <clears throat> my brother is a ER doctor and a hospital administrator in Fresno. Mm. And he's, he's whipped. The infrastructure is strained to the point of being broken. Right. And mostly it's people that aren't vaccinated or yeah, are careless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have family that are immunocompromised. If they ask me to wear a mask, I'm not going to bitch about it. Right. You know, and they would wear a mask if they go out. Uh, why do you think doctors and dentists always have a mask on? Yeah, right. And so For if sure. it doesn't work, but, you know, I just err on the side of science and I err on the side of compassion and empathy. I mean, yeah. I don't like wearing the damn thing. It's really uncomfortable if you got a beard. Yeah, it is. For a long period of time, it's like sucks with the beard. Yeah. I mean, but an eight hour airplane journey, I'm going to wear the thing. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was weird to like fall asleep on the plane with the mask the first couple of times, but then you sort of get over it and then you're tired and then you don't care. <laughs> right. It's just, I'm used to it. I don't want right. to wear it forever, but I want to beat this thing into submission to the point where we can feel safe about it and not have this grand debate on a national level. It's yeah. just, just, you got bigger fish to fry. Incredible. But I think the key word is compassion, really. You're an incredibly compassionate human. I know that from all the work that you've done and the the band is incredibly passionate as well. You talked about the Tunes for Tots program. And I've heard you say something that I thought was really compelling. A lot of fans ask bands, or uh, I'm not saying this is a general rule, but just kind of setting the tone. A lot of music fans will be like, why doesn't my band talk about a particular political issue? Um, And some people can be disappointed with that or not for whatever reason. But I've heard you say that, look, as a band, we don't talk about politics, but 
we do the right thing. We support nonprofit organizations. And, and, and that, that was a wonderful sentiment. You know, you can, you can, it's like, and you, you talked about the famous saying, think locally, act lo- or th- act locally, think globally, act locally. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> took me a while to get to there. <laughs> um, visualize world peas. <laughs> visualize world peas, right? World peas. World uh, peas. Yeah. Whatever those are. Uh, maybe your wife knows about those as being a vegetarian. Um, but uh, that's just a, a, a wonderful mindset. And you really do put your money where your mouth is. There's a section on the, the widespread website. Uh, I think I encourage everyone to go there. The entitled across the head as good people. And it talks about all the different organizations that you support. Uh, Tunes for Tots, uh, this recent, the recent Mission Ballroom, correct me if I'm wrong, but that supported, uh, and it generally supports music ventures. Is that correct? And the, well, and Tunes for Tots. Tots was recently for that Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, among other things. And you have a list there of so many, and you've raised over $2 million through Tunes for Tots since the first benefit, I believe, was in 2005. And that alone was a cocktail party that raised $100,000. I mean, you're doing great work, Dave. Like, Thank you. you know, it's, Thank um, you, Josh. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, the, you know, I mean, as individual band members, the guys in Widespread Panic all know what having a guitar to play uh, in those tender years, adolescence, even earlier, uh, it's a way to wordlessly communicate. Mm. Um, it's every, it was everything to me, mm. you know, um, and that's important. And in the day of public schools, music programs being stripped, uh, we decided what can we do? And we figured out that, in a lot of these cases, you just make a big donation to a school system. Most of it's going to the administrators. Um, so what we did is we hired someone who could help us vet individual schools. Uh, and, and the way we would generally play it would be around New Year's, if we had a show in Atlanta, mm-hmm. we'd find a Georgia school. And we'd interview them. And the one we selected, we would actually buy exactly what they said they needed whether it was computer workstations or guitars and basses or keyboards wonderful, or in the weirdest things that I've come to know, uh, marching band sheet music is incredibly expensive because you need a copy of the piece of music for all 76, you know, players, they're all different. Right, so to do right. like one song with your marching band is a really expensive batch of sheet music. Mm. Uh, you know, so we learned all that stuff. If we did it in, you know, the one we did most recently that, that benefited Pine Ridge, it's like the poorest county in the world or the states. It's the poorest county in the states. And uh, one of the teachers came down. He's Native American. And he told us, he gave a remarkable presentation about how important it is to these teenagers to have these Native instruments to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that really got me was he said they have one of the highest teen suicide rates yeah. in the country. Yeah. And he has seen a big difference over the years when he can get these Native American teenagers involved in their traditional music. Um, and then he smudged and blessed the stage and each one of us. And it's just it's so fulfilling. Um, and mainly because I know what being able to play and having some instruction uh, by another human being really meant for me at the time. Right. Right. 
have you seen the flip side of that? Tell me a little bit about um, what it, what it means for a struggling school that cannot produce um, the cannot get their hands on the right equipment that cannot support their own music endeavors and have that sort of cultural and artistic outlet for the students that 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 desire it. Well, I, you know, I can't say that I've seen it, but I can tell you. Uh, that the beneficiaries for one of the Georgia tunes for tots mm-hmm. came and played at the VIP cocktail party the next year in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Cool. Um, and they ranged from like fifth grade up to 12th grade and they were just playing whatever, playing some yeah. jazz standards, playing some rock and roll. And they the smiles on their faces were amazing. Now I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there because I love Billy Strings. I've known him for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I think he's fantastic, but he went back to the school that he was in, in the little burg in Michigan, I believe it is, yeah. where he was in school. And he just made a very brief presentation and gave those students 200 acoustic guitars, 200 acoustic wow. guitars. Wow. And basically said the same thing I said, you know, I was a, a lonely, twisted up teenager no one to communicate with. Parents weren't really paying much attention. This piece of wood and steel changed my life. He's saying that, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's. I know it's on YouTube. I mean, I, I saw it right when he did it, and I was like, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We've been fortunate enough to learn how to play, find the right people to play with, somehow, you know, weave our way through this shit business yeah. in this day and age uh filled with charlatans <clears throat> and thieves and uh change some people's lives um we bring some joy to some people and that's incredibly fulfilling but the joy that it brings to me not having to do you know one of those potential futures without a bass guitar yeah um, makes me really happy uh so yeah look up the billy strings guitar giveaway thing mm, and okay it, it, i will I was, I was weeping because it's just so righteous and so from the heart, you know, it's, it's, it just makes sense to pay it forward to me. Yeah. Was it something that, and this was 2005. So I want to say like roughly what, like 15 years into, into widespread panic, roughly more or less. Um, Was it something, was the Tunes for Tons is a large nonprofit organization now in this effort to, it's also quite an effort to distribute properly funds, et cetera, hold a a benefit, advertise for a benefit. Um, what, What, was it something that you guys had been talking about for a while before you started in 2005? Like what was the, what was the seed that sort of started this? I mean, clearly you're all very, phil- you're, you're, you're philanthropic. Um, did, did you have to do a lot of talking with management or did you have to do a lot of convincing to like make this happen? No, management came up with the idea because for, for many years, they had been sort of fielding our requests as a band to help locally. Mm. Uh, you know, we were always in support of like, uh, women's shelters, crisis centers, food banks, after 9-11, we got very serious about coming into towns and helping out the fire department um, with funds that they may need. Right. Uh, the Red Cross has always been, you know, but we, we like to we like to keep it local. So I think what management did was like, let's try to get an organized yearly thing. Um, mm. And so what is something that you guys really believe in that you feel as a group you can really get behind? And, and you know, and that idea. Of, of getting instruments into to kids' hands, just, it was a grand slam. And yeah. then the, 
the specific way they chose to go after it. I mean, I think that that's a really good model because, you know, you can read the, read the histories of some of the greatest uh, charitable events like uh, uh, concert for Bangladesh, mm-hmm. you know, George Harrison's big thing. And, and uh, even with a movie, you know, it's like some incredibly infinitesimal percentage of the monies taken in at the concert never made it to the intended recipients because of administrative details and, and handling and whatnot. And so for us to be able to like find a specific school and not send them a check, but literally go out and buy exactly what they said they needed cuts that stuff out. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're getting a hundred percent of what we took in. And it's being converted 100% to what they said they needed. And it's a huge effort because you've got to have the organization. I don't know if it's like, a, it's a 501c3, right? I'm or not sure. You, like that. Anyway, I mean, but beside that, um, that's not the really question. It's more just the acknowledgement so that everyone understands you need to have so many individuals that are, that are doing this to get the money, to get the money to the right hands, to buy the right equipment. And those are individuals that are doing a job, either volunteering or, or, or otherwise. And there's just a long line of organization that needs to be executed. It's true. And, and, you know, everybody's working pro bono and from like the staff at the venues. You know, mm-hmm. the, the security staff and the, the back staff, right? you know, are, are like working for free, either that or the owner of the venue is just paying them out of the, his pocket. Yeah. For that one particular night. Yeah. 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 How much, um, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I've, 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 anytime we, you, you, you look at widespread panic in the history, panic in the streets, the show in, in, in Athens comes up, um, how much of an impact did that have on how you think about these nonprofits going forward when you saw what incredible support your band had on a grassroots level? Well, you know, a great example of that, and we didn't start this, but we're big boosters of it, is a a place in Athens called Nucci Space. Mm, yeah, a, I wanted to mention that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Nucci Space, Nucci Phillips was a very gifted young guitar player with mental illness, and he killed himself. And one of the ways that his mother dealt with that pain was mm. she found this old, uh, I can't remember what it used to be, uh, maybe some sort of light industrial storage space right on the edge of town, edge of downtown, edge of the University of Georgia, yeah. like near the art building. And she had an idea to convert it to practice spaces, a little performance space, a little coffee shop, um, a place to hang out and free mental health care. And including Mm. the free mental health care and counseling was every so often, maybe once a month, actual free physical health care. And over the, I think they're just celebrating their, maybe their 25th anniversary this Mm. year. Uh, It's an incredible organization Uh, Linda Phillips wrote a book. She sadly passed away last year, Mm -hmm. but her, her vision goes forward. And I mean, I've come back there and rehearsed there with some friends of mine to just do like a little pickup gig. And it's great because you have some coffee. There's a rehearsal bin. It's safe. You can sit outside on the patio and drink your coffee, smoke cigarettes, Uh, you know, and they have performances. I know that Bill Frizzell has played there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I helped Kenny Roby with his uh, record called The Reservoir two years uh-huh. ago. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought it would be really cool. And he had a whole bunch of Kickstarter crowdsourcing perks. And one was a house concert. 
And I just went ahead and bought the house concert. Nice. And I figured, because Kenny had connections in Athens with uh -huh. the band Six String Drag that he was in. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why don't we just do this house concert and do it as a benefit for Nucci Space? You know, I mean, nice. it's just, it just feels like to do things like this and to support these places ultimately is going to give me more music to listen to as an yeah. old guy because right. these young kids and Nucci Space does this thing called Camp Amped during the summer where they take mm. local musicians and basically turn them into camp counselors with rock and roll guitars. And nice. the local kids all sign up for Camp Amped and they learn how to play and then they put on a big concert. And I'm like, I've seen my friend's kids who are in elementary school scorch a black, uh, a, an ACDC song. Yeah, it's nice, just nice, like, nice. It makes me so happy. Yeah, so you're like paying it forward essentially and like in trying to educate and, you know, bring musical education to to young people so that you can enjoy it when you're older. Exactly. It's truly it's wonderful. Selfish. It's wonderful. Very selfish. <laughs> right. It's totally. You're a totally selfish human. I'm man. really selfish God, about this. <laughs> man, you just like uh, you only think about yourself and uh, <laughs> um we talked about um I I wanted to talk about Neil Casal and uh, love to talk about his music and the tribute album, which I think is wonderful that you co-produced um, uh, with Jim Scott. And um, you've been very outspoken about suicide prevention. We talked about it already here in this, uh, in this conversation, but it's truly touching and um, heartfelt when I've heard you talk about it in other forums and read about it. And you knew, you knew Neil well. Um, and I talk about mental health quite a bit on this show and I've really been deeply affected. And I want to thank you so much for your amazing words in other forums on mental health and your incredible insight. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that, especially with respect to touring musicians, artists, and others, because there's so many people out there that are music fans that suffer from uh, mental health issues as well. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the effect that Neil had, but also sort of the broader picture of mental health, not only in the industry, but as far as it has touched your lives and how you've seen it affect others and what you're trying to do about it. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think what we're doing <clears throat> to go at your question backwards, yeah. what we're doing right here is the best thing we can do about it, which is just get this stuff out in the open and talk about it in everyday terms. You know, it's not some monster lurking in the shadows. It's just a, it's a legitimate mental health care issue. Mm. Um, but because it is mental illness and mental health, it tends to be something that it's not certainly, it's not like a guy's club kind of thing to talk about. Uh, but to talk about it and to have conversations like this that will be heard uh, brings it into the sunlight. And when things get into the sunlight, they're less creepy yeah. and uh, we can deal with them because really the first step in solving any kind of mental health issue is to find the right person to talk to it about. Yeah. Uh, most people who suffer in silence, maybe their spouse knows about it. Um, you know, Neil was so secretive that, you know, his close band members in hardworking Americans or Chris Robinson brotherhood uh, circles around the sun, they knew something was wrong, you know, but they didn't know why there were a lot of, there's a lot of conjecture. Mm -hmm. Um, and if there was a note, Neil left an extraordinarily detailed note. Um, 
then there becomes a reason, but that's hindsight at that point. It's always 2020. Right. Uh, I think to take away whatever stigma exists about simply talking about it, about me feeling okay to take a band member who I particularly trust aside and go, I'm having a hard time with some of this. To do that as opposed to remaining silent and having it fester, possibly and most likely self-medicating to uh, uh, you know ob- obscure the effects it's having on me. Mm. I think that uh, this is the great first step. And so to support backline.care mm-hmm. and Nucci space and music cares. Um, and there, there are several others that I, I can't remember right now, but those are the big three that the Neil Casal foundation is trying to help out sweet relief in a lot of cases. Also, because if you have a physical malady and you can't afford insurance, you can't get your physical malady taken care of. Well, that is a, an excellent first step towards suffering in silence mentally. You know, it doesn't have to be something like depression or bipolar or any of these like diagnostic things. It's just, you don't feel right. Yeah. <clears throat> Taking care of yourself is like the first step. And that can be as easy as getting physically checked out so that you, you're not the, all those kind of cobwebs in your head about, fuck, I'm going to fucking die. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay, but go to the doctor and find out. You know, I struggle with that too. I don't I, like, sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't want to know. I don't want to, I don't want to go. I don't want to know. Like, but you know, the people in my life are like, fucking go. And right. you're not, I, I, I've been there. Yeah. It's, it's, there are so many things to talk about and, and try to make them okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would be very tempted to say, at least in my experience that the touring situation is kind of a very, like, sometimes it can almost be militaristic. Mm. Um, because it's highly scheduled, you know, mm-hmm. you got to be here at exactly this time and you, you can't play too long or else the, the union is going to scorch us for $10,000. Mm. Um, but also there's just like, be a man, suck it up. You know, the show must go on, you know, it's, <laughs> and, and enough of that stuff when you're not feeling right, it's like, you're spending every spare second in your bunk with the per- curtain closed. If you're lucky enough to have a tour bus. Yeah. You know, in a lot of cases, you're just sort of suffering in silence with your bandmates. Maybe you've wedged yourself into the far back corner of the van with your headphones on and you're listening to talk, talk or something super fever, dreamy, depressing. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it. And the thing is, it's those who have dealt with mental illness long term are experts at disguise. Experts. Everything's fine until it isn't. You know, but most of the time everything's fine. And so you got to break through the ice from without and you have to feel okay about smashing your own ice to get out and share the way you're feeling. Um, And I think that, you know, just talking about it like you and I are right here is someone's going to hear it and it's going to be a small little dart of it's okay to talk about it. And however many darts it takes to fill up that bullseye and make that person feel like I need to share. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're throwing a dart. You know, it's the best I can do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've talked to so many artists on this sh- on on the show, and this comes up. I mean, matter of fact, I, I also spoke to Hillary Gleason, a backline as well. We talked about the organization and how it can help those uh, touring professionals and others in the business that are out there. Um, yeah, just to talk about it. And everyone has um, uh, issues with with self worth, and 
you know, I can't speak to by experience about touring artists, but clearly what you're talking about, the being just in the regimented environments and not just kind of not feeling yourself. I, I can't even imagine if I go and I travel for two weeks, I feel that way without having the, the pressures of, 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 of performance. Um, are you seeing more people? What, what's, what about on the positive side? Are you seeing more people talk about it and being more open about it? It seems like every artist I talk about is really in touch with, with these mental health issues. And Dave, it does become something that is being more, more talked about from my perspective. Is that kind of your feeling as well? Absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, enough people take themselves out, you know, it's like the year 2019 was awful. It was Jeff Austin. It was Berman. Yeah. It was Casal. Uh, and, and, you know, people were like, uh, you know, MC Taylor, his golden messenger wrote a, a very, very evocative um, piece. And William Tyler wrote something. Uh, it's just like, this is happening way too frequently. Mm. And so during where's the, year, the MC, where's the MC uh, available oh, to read? Is that like an essay that he wrote? It was, or no, it was like it a, a Instagram post or something. Ah, okay. Social media. I'm not too, Okay. Yeah. 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 So, but you know, both those guys, in fact, one of them might've reposted what the other one wrote. I can't remember (laughs) right now, but getting the word out. And then, so over the course of 2020, uh, you know, I work with an artist named Andy Frasco. Yeah. I had Andy. I just talked to him. He was on, on the show. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's the hustler and he's a self-made man. He works his ass off. He does. And, uh, one of the first things that we talked about when our mutual manager, put us together to to talk about possibly working together Mm -hmm. was that he was concerned with the amount of partying he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not letting the cat out of the bag. He's unabashed about talking about it. And, Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, how much of that was self-medication to like deal with the physical. I mean, it's, it's a very physical show he puts on. Oh yeah. And it involves crowds surfing and doing the horror and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And, uh, and, and, you know, and how much of this is going to, I said, look, you're young now and it, it's not going to fuck with you yet, but how, you know, when you're older, you're going to, it's going to hurt to get out of bed, Yeah, you know, so you're going to have to consider the hangover factor and what percentage of the hangover factor is, you know, your mental health, how much of the drinking and the partying is something that you're doing to hide something that's going on up here. Maybe you're at war with yourself and that's kind of how our relationship started. So it's, it makes me feel really good to know that that's one of the big planks that he's standing on as an artist in his offstage life is his podcasts and his shit show and the dance parties and all mm-hmm. the MC stuff he does. He's extraordinarily supportive of this very thing. Absolutely. I love and the way every, he talks. Yeah. Every artist has their own slant on it. You mm-hmm. know, mine's a little more of a philosophical bent but a lot of it is based in I've lost too many goddamn friends. Yeah. You know, I yeah. loved Neil Casal, the relationship I had with Neil Casal and and many people will say this about him was just that he was so easygoing and the first connection to make with Neil would either be about the records that were released in 1971 or recorded in 1971 like Exile on Main Street and how yeah. that was the greatest year for records or recording records. Right. And and then the music we were playing, which in our case was the very first hardworking Americans record. Mm-hmm. I knew who Neil was. I had never met him. So when he pulled his gear out of his truck and loaded it into TRI and we went after that first deconstructed song, I can't remember what the first song was. I, I, I want to say it was a 
welfare music, but it could have been the driving and crying song straight to hell. Mm -hmm. But he was so in to the deconstructive thing. It's like, no, we're, you know, any cover band can record a song the way the original artist wrote it. Right. Let's do what Led Zeppelin did. Let's, Except let's actually pay them the royalties. <laughs> <You know? laughs> let's deconstruct these songs that Todd Snyder had lovingly curated. And uh, so Neil and I made that connection. And then we cut the record in three days. The band split. And Neil said, can we stay an extra day, me and you? I want to do overdubs and background vocals. And that's when I discovered that we are Gemini twins of studio ratdom. We would rather just stay in a studio all the time and laugh and about crazy shit we could lay down and look at each other and go, man, that's deep. We rule. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was forged. And I've written about Neil and said that he had secrets and he did have secrets. So, you know, and whatever line someone in his circle had to cross with him to where he would say something about how he really felt, um, you know, that's a tough line. And we crossed it a couple times in the back lounge. Everybody else was asleep. You know, we're talking about girls or something. He's like, you know, I was divorced. And it's just like, what? You never told me. It's like hardest thing that I ever had to go through. I really mm-hmm. fucked up, you know, um, or a more light occasion that I've written about is we're making a playlist. All the, We love making playlists. We're in the front lounge <laughs> and we're making a Southern rock playlist. Yeah. So we're going through all the, you know, big, yeah, big shocker, Dave. <laughs> gotta have the Allman Brothers. Gotta have Skinner. You know, gotta have Grinder Switch and and blah blah blah. And we like kind of run out the tape. And I'm like thinking, and all of a sudden, Blackfoot can't have a Southern rock playlist without Blackfoot's Train Train. And Neil just goes, "I played with those guys," and we're like, "What?" And I'm checking the math in my head. I'm like, and he goes, "Yeah, I played with those guys. I was like the young hotshot teenage guitar ringer that they brought in, and and I learned everything I know about the road from Ricky Medlock." And I was like, that does, you know, okay, yeah, the end of their kind of road. Cause, you know, Ricky sings with Skinner now. Uh huh. And uh, so it's just those kind of secrets. Is it something really dark and deep and personal? But it's also even just like he just hold those cards really close. You know, if he was a gambler, he would have been a great bluffer. Yeah. Uh, yeah which I guess yeah. is what he was doing for years with his mental health and the way he felt. He felt that he orbited on the outside of everyone else. Even if they loved him, you know, this is a delusion, um, a depression delusion Yeah, uh, that he, he didn't have a voice and he spoke very plainly and very clearly about it in his manifesto. Um, from the outside, someone like me is like, dude, you know, the third circles around the sun record, you're literally like one publicity cycle away from being on the cover of guitar player magazine. Yeah. You know, he was, he's becoming a master. Not only a songwriter, but a master. And that's the thing that the Highway Butterfly Project showed me was that I knew Neil as the sideman, the amazing background vocalist, the amazingly patient and colorful guitar, rhythm guitarist and soloist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, MC Taylor knew Neil as a prototypical Americana songwriter with that mm. record fade away diamond time that he put out in 1994. Uh, it's got a, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things in the basket before the basket got classified as Americana wow. with the Jayhawks and BR 5, 549 and, 
and Ryan Adams and everything else that fell yeah. into that big catch-all basket. But so there's these two sides of Neil, but the songwriter is amazing. Yeah. You know, and that's what recording 41 different artists doing 41 different versions of his songs. I've always been of the opinion that a great song is a great song. It's the melody and words. Mm-hmm. And you can frame it any way. You can interpret it. You know, Led Zeppelin were interpreters of the blues, the Grateful Dead, amazing Bob Dylan interpretations. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's someone like Leslie Mendelssohn doing a Neil song or Shooter Jennings doing a Neil song or, uh, you know, Billy Strings, Marcus King, Bob yeah. Weir. It's yeah. just like, it's stunning. Derek and Susan did one too, right? They did an amazing version of Day yeah. in the Sun. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, that's a great song. I, I never realized it because I was like, Neil's this guy that, I mean, you know, you're, you're on stage with Todd Snyder, undeniably mm-hmm. the greatest, one of the greatest songwriters of our generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and even Todd was like, you know, Neil's a really good songwriter. Maybe we should do one or two of his songs. And we actually worked up super highway, but we never did it. <laughs> so O'Teal sings it and Steve Kimmock and Dwayne trucks play on it on the Neil record. Yeah. Yeah. And he had Aaron Lee Tashin on there too. I had him on the show as well. What a wonderful human he is. I absolutely I just so love enjoyed him. having him on the show and talking to him and getting to know him. What a wonderful dude. He's the greatest. <laughs> He's got such a great attitude and just is so loving and open to just everything and experiences. And he's just a great conversationalist as well, which I loved. He's a badass guitar player. Too. And he is. Yeah. You ever seen him play with John? You know the Bryant? whole New York doll story with him. Oh, right? yes. Yep. He was like, I got plucked out of a club in New in New York City, and like 30, 96 hours later, I'm playing in front of 100,000 people in Santiago. I'm like, what? Okay, let's go there, man. Tell me. Tell me that story. <laughs> that yeah. was amazing. That was amazing. But so you've, I'm, I'm so sorry about your friend, Dave. And I, I just, I just want to tell you that. And um, I'm really sorry for everything that you've gone through with respect to, um, to, to Neil and, and, and clearly the after effects um, were deep and you've created this incredible legacy uh, or crystallized his legacy to a certain degree with this album and 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 that it's it's truly wonderful and i can feel the love that you have for him both personally and professionally really um and to bring all those people together to honor him that must have been just an amazing life's work for you almost but but my, my my question is like how did it affect you personally and how did it change your life? What occurred with Neil? I mean, it must have been incredibly hard for you initially, with as as was it with with everybody that knew Neil um, or were fans of Neil. But you were extremely close with him. You talk about mental health. You had been involved in mental health, and then and then this occurred. What um, what were the changes that underwent with you, and what was the process that you had to go through? Well, you know, uh, you know, I, I just got back from a funeral from an old family friend. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the first drummer I ever played with, we started a band in, in sixth grade and uh, wow. we would still get together and put that band together and play for like class reunions every now and then or charitable mm-hmm. things. Uh, and it was cancer that took my friend Rob Crosby out. Uh, and there's nothing that can be done about that. That is a complete, <laughs> we don't have any control about it. Yeah. Sorry about uh, so, that. So yeah, thanks. It's, and the reason I mention it is because it never gets easier. You know, with most things in life, uh, you figure it out via repetition. Um, but death 
never gets easier. And, and you never know, I never know how it's going to affect me. My experience, mm. you know, the Neil thing was one of the most painful and shocking um, and unexpected things ever. Of course, when people get together and start talking, uh, the bereaved, as it were, uh, everybody's got a piece of the puzzle. And when they start talking, this picture begins to form mm. that, uh, okay, so Neil was upset and he wasn't giving anyone the whole straight story, but he gave enough. So we all put our clues together. But then again, yeah. what good is that? That's hindsight. So something that never gets easier, but is a constant when people pass away, whether it's by suicide or from a disease or something is we ask ourselves, what could I have done to maybe change that horrible, tragic death? Well, really not much except for no, let the person know that you're there. And so in a case like my buddy, Rob, it's hard to even, cause you're afraid that, you know, you want to treat that person with kid gloves. They've just been handed the toughest hand of their lives. Yeah. Um, but it's important. And maybe that's just me who has a hard time reaching out. But I finally reached out and, and, you know, hey, I just want you to know that I'm here for you if you want to yell, scream, kick, fight, get together on FaceTime and watch the Beatles documentary. I'm here for you. And that's appreciated. Now, suicide is a different bird altogether, because yeah. if someone doesn't know it's coming, then that person who takes their own life is ripped from yours. There's no preparation. Right. Um, and it, it certainly never gets easier. There's oh boy. But to make the record was probably the greatest combination funeral service, wake, reception, grief counseling session I could imagine because it was so many of Neil's friends who played with him. That was, that was the main boatload of people who were backing up all these other artists. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the artists had either been friends with him for a long time or done a project or two or brushed up against him, had conversations. And almost all of them who had never played with him had plans cooking to do a project with him. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were really, really, uh, you know, we all deal with grief in our own way, but to be at Jim Scott's recording palace, which I call the happiest place on earth, <laughs> even though magic mountain can be seen from the rooftop, uh, was so helpful. I mean, there were certain parts of grief that I have a problem with. I'm not a crier. Um, so it was pretty easy for Jim, myself, and Gary Waldman, who was the executive producer and Neil's manager, longtime friend, like 30 plus years. Uh, it's pretty easy for us to put that heavy stone off, busying ourselves, trying to yeah. put this package together. But a lot of the other musicians, literally broke down on the spot. Uh, there were times in the control room when a, an artist would be recording and uh, Neil laced his songs with little clues. Mm. Um, I mean, down to the line in Lost Satellite that Lauren Barth sings, give me enough rope to hang myself by. And that line comes drifting through the, the control room and Jim and Gary are in, uh, in there and it's like, you know, I, I can't even... I can't make eye contact because if we were to make eye contact with each other in that moment, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do our job. Yeah, it would have, yeah. you know, so as the project neared its end and it was down to like, you know, all the songs were approved by the artist and it was time to master this thing. Jim calls me and he's like, Hey, what are we going to do now? 
And I said, I guess we got to, you know, finally grieve for real. However, whatever that means to each of us. Yeah. And, uh, and it never gets easier and it's always different. You know, it's like, I cannot predict when it's going to hit me. I could be looking at toothpaste because they didn't have the right brand and looking to see which one I should get. And all of a sudden I'm crying, you know, or tears are just, it's like, where did that come from? What's going on here? Yeah. Um, and that's hard. And for a lot of people like, uh, Dwayne trucks played on the record and he was able to get through the song he played on. But when he got the whole shebang, he's like, I got to tell you, I've been putting off listening to it because I just don't think I'm ready to go through that. (laughs) I mean, it is three plus hours of Neil's music. Yeah. Uh, And some of the versions really went. I won't use the word maudlin or morose because they're beautiful and they're sparkling and the production and the, the melody and everything is gorgeous, but some of them are, are funerary um, interpretations of the songs. I mean, and Neil was an expert on melancholy anyway. Yeah. So some of the melancholy songs are just, I mean, to make them unmelancholy would do them a disservice. Right. And it just makes them that much deeper at the time. I could imagine. Wow. Yeah. So I get it. And I understand that it is a marathon. Listen, it's five LPs, you know, three CDs. It's over three hours of music. But this is a person who was horrifically underserved um, by the music media um, in his, not only his tenure as a songwriting recording artist, but also in his tenure as a remarkable sideman to mm-hmm. people from Ryan Adams to Chris Robinson to, to the hardworking Americans. Right. And, and uh, I think that that disservice was part of his, the hole in him that he could never seem to fill. So the least we can do for our friend is to try to get this music of his into a platform where a lot of people can be exposed to it. I mean, yeah. if you like Aaron Lee Tashin and you like his version of traveling after dark, you might just let it go on and play through and discover Kenny Roby or Jesse Acock. If you're a Billy Strings fan, you know, you might just go ahead and discover Robbie Rob or, you know, any number of these amazing artists that Wait, devoted so, their time. Yeah. You're making an interesting point, Dave. You're talking, did, did you feel that some of the frustration in Neil's life or not to minimize frustrations, not a deep enough word, but, um, you, you you reflected upon him not being as recognized in the media and perhaps that had a negative effect on him um is that that's is, true okay so um are you but that's an interesting one because i talk about in my own life giving your own self that not not necessarily if you need external affirmation then that's kind of a diff, that's a dangerous road that's and right. I'm sure, and I'm sure you've been there, right? I mean, uh, sure, absolutely. I'm in widespread panic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, man. You said it. Um, you that that affirmation's got to come from within, and that's the most difficult piece of the puzzle. It's got to come from within, and I've been lucky. And I'm not. I want to interrupt you for a second. Like, I'm not saying that's everything about Neil, of course, but I did pick up on that one kernel of what you were talking about, and I think that's an important distinction. And I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Giving your own self what you need, and and how you do that as well. And of course, you mentioned first of all not getting the critical recognition that you deserve, but you need to give that to yourself, man, because you're fucking great, and and so is Panny, and and so is 
and and so is everybody. And you know, but this is this is something that talking to the right people can help with. Right. I think right. all artists are subject, especially in this day and age of social media, up oh, to God, imposter syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome, comparison syndrome. Uh, you know, but in, in those days in the 90s, it's like there was an almost direct correlation between the level of success you could achieve as an artist, a recording mm. artist, and the level of publicity and ink you might get, or the number of people that would come to see you play. Widespread Panic's always been lucky. I mean, we have confounded label after label for almost 40 years of, they could not do the math. They'd come see a show, see an incredibly into it, immense crowd mm -hmm. of loyal fans that just would not buy a record. They would not buy a record. They were too busy. You know, Capricorn Records, A, couldn't believe we allowed people to record our concerts. <laughs> well, it's like those people have already bought the records. They want more. That yeah, whole yeah, yeah. RIAA anti-bootlegging campaign that was started in the it's 70s. like been there, done that with the dead. Springsteen, you know, his signature's big. John Hancock's on the, the full-page ad in Rolling Stone against bootlegging. It's like, dude, put out a fucking live record that can rival what people pick up on at your show. You know, it's like, because these people recording, I mean, they might be turning a nasty profit, but the people buying that stuff are your biggest fans. They've right. run out of stuff to buy. Right. You know, and then the Grateful Dead is trading tapes like baseball cards. Yeah. No big deal. You know, I mean, they're buying tickets. They're buying merch. They're creating their own experience. But for a recording artist like Neil in the 90s, you know, he got shuttled from label to label to label, much to, to Gary Waldman and his own concern. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I'm just, I'm really happy to be able to record my music and and play, even though I'm playing in half-empty rooms that could most likely be a, a pizza party joint yeah. during the daylight hours. You know, I mean, you've got to get some kind of outside vindication for what you do, unless you're made of much sterner artistic stuff than most traveling musicians are these days. Now, these days, you know, I'd hate to be some young, desperate band being advised by a social media consultant who you're paying money to mm. that you've got to put what you had for lunch up on your Instagram account. Right. You know, and, but I see enough of that stuff and I just read desperation, but here I am at 57 years old on the, you know, still kind of going, I wouldn't even call it a victory lap we're on because we never went away. So, right. you know, we're still lucky enough to, to sell tickets and play music and do what we do. Uh, I love watching artists like His Golden Messenger and Andy Frasco and Billy Strings blow the fuck up because they're talented and they work hard. Um, but there are people who fall through the cracks, and a lot of, there's always been this prevailing attitude in the music industry. Well, you know, you got to suffer for your art, or just suck it up and play every show, and oh, that's good and well, and we've all done that. Any successful artist is going to tell you that there is a trailer behind them that is filled with failures. Mm -hmm. The whole trick is never giving up and not quitting. But when you mix in some mental illness and no one to talk to, then it's a recipe for disaster, whether it's self-medication and what I call a lifestyle exit, which might be an overdose, or it might be a heart attack because you haven't even made enough money to take care of yourself physically. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, uh, watching a junkie is like watching a slow motion train wreck. You know, you're lucky if they don't take the whole band down with them. Yeah. Um, so Neil was suffering in silence and he needed a little bit of vindication. And, a, you know, it didn't matter how much I could tell him he was six months away from being on the cover of Guitar Player magazine 
whatever ice he had put up around himself and his his delusional depression. Yeah. Um, and I do not discount the hormonal chemical elements of mental illness and depression. Right, right. You can't hear those positive signals from even if from, from friends that that you, you're unable to take over that. I'm no expert. You're unable to 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 wear that mantle of positivity no matter what. That's 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 the difficult part. Yeah. Right. And any mantle of positivity you tend to wear is literally worn like a mask. You know. Yeah. Yeah. To, to quit bothering me, I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Have you been there? Have you like, what are some of the major challenges that you face that you have faced over the course of your career being on the road, playing so many thousands of shows live, being everywhere, being in front of fans up on on stage? What are, what's kind of the things that, that, that stand out um, with you in terms of the biggest challenges that you face throughout your career from a, from a mental standpoint? Um, well, exhaustion definitely can lead to yeah, or physical standpoint, <laughs> physical, but physical I mean, and mental, yeah, they're they're indelibly linked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mental and the physical are indelibly linked, and I wish I had figured that out earlier. Um, mm. But really, you know, I mean, in the early, we, I mean, we made our first record in 1989, and then mm. we got we spent about a year and a half wiggling around with different contracts from big major labels. And finally, we went with Capricorn, um, who was distributed by Warner Brothers. And, um, you know, like I said, their frustrations were matched. You know, we were just, you know, there's a certain element that's ripe for exploitation is in the young artist who is just happy to be out on the road. There's a feeling of freedom. You know, if you had a cell phone in 1990, it was, you know, it's the size of a drum. Uh, So no one had cell phones. I was like, no one is going to chase, chase me down to get the phone bill paid because I'm out on the road for, I mean, you know, we'd finish a sound check and there'd be a mad dash to see who could get to the phone booth first to call home. The phone booth. What's a phone booth? Yeah. What's a phone booth? Um, so yeah. And then, you know, a lot of times substance is, is brought in to help deal with exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my thing was I liked anything that made my mind stop. Um, mm. thinking, which would generally be opiates. And I'm, you know, I, I'm no stranger and I don't mind saying that I've been clean from that stuff for 20 years, but it became a very serious problem with mm. me. And, uh, you know, you don't want something that you start doing to help you get through a show, get to the point where you're not playing to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening with me. And, you know, the other guys were scared because, you know, they thought the inevitable was going to happen on their watch. Um, but really with me, it was like, I don't want to be controlled by something. I have an art of time being told what to do by a person, let alone a pile of white powder. Right. You know, I'm just, yeah. and uh, I want to be able to play my best. And in fact, I was uptight about it, you know? Mm. So there are a lot of factors. I mean, the road is hard. It doesn't matter if you're in a nice tour bus and staying in nice hotel rooms. I mean, we worked our way up from two cars to two cars in a van, to a van and a truck and, and then a bus and then two buses and three buses. And it doesn't matter. You know, the, if there's something not right in here, yeah, you can frame it however you want. It's, it's, it's just something not right in a fancy frame. Right. Everywhere you go, there you are. Fucking A. That's right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone faces those issues in, in, in everyone's life, but it just gets magnified for you as you are a touring artist in a major, huge band with an incredible following. Yeah, and, you know. How did, how, did, how, did you, how did you get over, you said you were in, uh, in that for 10 years, in that cycle for 10 years. What was the thing that made you stop? Uh, <laughs> I just had a moment of clarity. You know, I, I hit bottom. I'm just like, uh, I can't, I am not in control of me. You know, huh. my addiction is running me. And what did bottom look like? What did everything. bottom look like for you? The bottom looked like, uh, I mean, it was just sheer misery. Mm. I was, I was miserable and, uh, I was, I was in bad shape physically. You know, yeah. I had a, a horrible case of edema, um, mm. And, and, you know, I, I was like, I was about this close to going from someone who smoked it and snorted it to shooting it. And wow. I don't like needles, you know, so I went to rehab and I came out of rehab and it was like right onto the summer of the year 2000 widespread panic summer tour. Dave, I don't know if you remember this. You probably don't up our asses the whole tour. And I was like, well, that'll right. be fun. <laughs> Good luck finding me wherever I'm hiding from this toxic circus because that's what it was. We're a jam band. It's the year 2000. We're on the ascent. We're mm -hmm. having huge after show parties. It's fun. It's yeah. fucking fun. I'm not going to lie. I was having a great time until I wasn't. How was that tour coming back? How miserable was that? Was it hard? And when did you turn kind of turn the corner to being like, I can do this life clean and I had a lot I of feel help. a lot better doing it? I had a lot of help. Mm. I mean, it was difficult because the main thing is not wanting to get in anyone else's way and not to expect anyone else to change their experience because I was trying to change mine. And I had a lot of support. Uh, I pretty much had someone from, you know, something, some service uh, would come and meet with me one on one um, every day because it was hard. You know, yeah. it's the hardest thing I think I've ever had to do. Yeah. Um, is to unhook that wagon from myself. Uh, but it got easier and easier. And, you know, sometimes the best way to lead is by example, you know, and if people who are engaged in a similar str uh, struggle see me going through a struggle and see me getting better and better, looking better and better, playing mm -hmm. better and better, mm -hmm. um, starting to pay it, pay it forward, to be right. open to talking to people who may be struggling in a similar way, um, that just sends this message that it's not a dead end street. You can do it. Just don't give up. Talk to somebody. Yeah. Were you, um, I, I, I did not go through this as a fan at the time of widespread panic, but were, were you public with those, that, that level of, um, uh, of what you were going through at the time? I was only public in so much as I was wearing a NA bracelet around mm. my wrist. Mm. And the main reason I was wearing it was because it was attached to a ponytail holder. And when I'd have a craving, I would pull it and snap it. <laughs> and just a, just like, you know, when you, your dog, I see you have a dog, you know, oh, I, you had I a spot, you had a sponsor or something that yeah, you checked I in with somebody every day, having that, having that support system there. Yeah. Helped you a lot. It did. And, you know, the same problem affects us from all walks of life. Um, and I found a group full of people who we shared similar problems. We were enslaved by those problems. Mm -hmm. 
but believe me, I was the only guy that wasn't like a construction worker or, you know, housewife. Um, so in what that, you, it what differed. What do you mean by that? Well, oh, oh, I wasn't in, a, gonna, in a group. In a, yeah, in, well, in I wasn't going to lose my job because I was an addict. <laughs> right. You know, in fact, I was always fond of saying a joke that, you know, a drug test comes back negative in my line of work, you get fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they didn't really appreciate that sense of humor because most of them can't find their sense of humor. Um, luckily, I have a really tight bunch of friends that weren't in those groups that did look out for me and that mainly gave me endless amounts of shit in a loving brotherly way mm-hmm. you know who did you think you were fooling you know you fucking fell asleep and cigarette burned a hole in your pants <laughs> while we were watching tv you fucking idiot <laughs> right. so they were glad to get me back and you know i'll take the knocks you know the hardest thing for me ever to learn was that people don't joke with you unless they love you they don't give you a bunch of different nicknames unless they want to call you over <sighs> right, you know i right, mean right, right. people who don't like you just generally don't go out of their way yeah to yeah. to be around you and i never got that lesson so you know my journey to i'm not going to say mental health cuz i still fight with things every day i struggle with things all the time right um towards mental health towards to my yes towards almost stability not to to not you're not in, you know yeah i know what you're saying yeah you can approach it but you're like yeah it's a goal right. it's a goal for it, everybody it should be it, goal, it comes in many forms i mean sometimes and i hate to say it a fucking meme on Instagram really sums something up. Yeah. You know, also when Kenny Roby gives me a book about fear, um, I can read that and that sums it up and we become tighter and more able to talk about the things that rattle us Mm. better as friends. Um, You know, I hate to say it, but there's something to be gained and loss in the losing of a friend. I mean, I'm, you've heard me say this. If you've heard me talk about this Neil project was that I called him a King mixer in that he constantly had people that he wanted his friends to hook up with that. He also was friends with. Mm-hmm. It's like, for instance, with me, it's like, you got to meet Tom Monahan. You and him would get along so great. Yeah. Uh, Tom's yeah, yeah. a, he's a producer down in LA. I'm sure you know who he is. Producer of Ediver records and Neil sweet in the distance record. And oh, right on. amazing guy with, we never got to meet, but when Neil parceled out all of his worldly belongings, yeah. everything went to one person, you know, or like so-and-so got this guitar, so-and-so got that amp. Right, right. Well, his guitar pedal collection, Box of Inspiration, like I was talking about at the beginning of this, uh-huh. uh, was left to me and Tom Monahan because right. I feel like he knew we never met. And he knew we both liked guitar pedals and wacky sonic alterations and sounds and well, whether he thought about it consciously or not, the end result was I went down to Tom Monahan's place in Valley Glen and we split up Neil's pedals. Yeah. And well, got I, to hang out. The best part about that story, when I read about that, was that uh, you had to dig sand out of the box because Neil was a surfer <laughs> and he had like lumped all this shit in there and there was sand and crap. That was just that personal touch of so what, you know, of, of uh, on top of the professional side of the love of music was fairly really fun for me. And I just imagine Neil out there in Ventura surfing. So, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in this most recent loss in my life, my, my buddy, Rob, uh, some people stay at home or they return to their hometown after college. And some people don't, and I'm one of the ones that didn't. And there's a couple of other that didn't, that made it back for the 
the funeral. And a lot of those people that didn't really hadn't been home more than a couple of times. It wasn't their home anymore. They left, their parents moved away, whatever. But getting together to celebrate the life of, of Rob, um, everybody was like, you know, we need to do this more often because we're still friends. You know, I mean, nostalgic things you did together and you don't have anything left to talk about, but, uh, so people coming closer together. And, uh, um, I just think it's important that people who have shared experiences continue to create experiences that they can share. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we're only on this plane together for so long. And as the two people that we're talking about having lost, we don't know when, when that's going to happen. Yeah. We, yeah. we may have a little warning in some cases, uh, with like a, a, a long, slow landing, like cancer, um, yeah. or a person may step out in front of a bus. You know, I have a friend that made guitar pedal effects. His name was Nick. who's up in Portland, had a company called Catlin bread mm-hmm. and, uh, driving home from work one night, an old growth alder tree fell on it. Fuck. I mean, just like, Your can you say four comes up, man? Yeah. Act of God. The number comes up. So the long and short of it is get as much quality time with the people you love. And as my dad always says, you know, tell your friends you love them, even if it's a little, you know, kind of awkward at first. I know. I I tell some of these, you know, punk rock friends of mine, you know, man, I love you. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, I I love you. That's all not loaded with anything else other than they're like, fuck off, dude. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Eat my well, shorts. Yeah, what right. Talking about. Well, I mean, what you're saying is like b- celebrate life on a daily basis because you've been brought together by a number of different tragedies. I mean, even losing Mikey Hauser early on, um it's affected the band, it's affected your life. You've been in these situations where you've had to come together because of loss. But the first thing that comes to my mind is coming together for beautiful reasons and to celebrate people being together and we That's had right. the loss of that during COVID and I'm talking about going to the shows, obviously, and being at those shows where it really is a celebration of love, life and music um, in kind of a different form and maybe less personal for you. But tell me a little bit about how personal that can get for you when, when you're on stage being the, the wonderful, sensitive, intuitive rock and roll philosopher that you are um, being up on there on stage, just holding it down, but and and you guys have played a record number of sold out shows at Red Rocks, which blew my mind. Sixty sold out shows at Red Rocks over the course of the career, because um, I think of that really as a temple. Um, I'm sure you have some other favorite venues as well. But what w- what is that like for you? Let's talk about that celebration of life and love and happiness and light and music. Well, one time I was lucky enough to interview Phil Lesh for Relics Magazine. Oh, nice. And, when and was he that? Mentioned, I got to look that up. <laughs> that was around the time when they were campaigning for Obama. So it must have been, uh, what was that? Make it 08? Up? 08, yeah. yeah. Um, but he said something. because I had asked him about um, preparing to go on stage and do play Grateful Dead music, you know, mm. which is, isn't like chart reading, and it's not like – what you do is indelibly linked to the light show like Pink Floyd or Roger Waters. It's, right. And he said something like, you know, the venues are, are cathedrals. They're places of ritual and worship. And he said, uh, you know, basically I'm a blunt tool of the Lord. He's like, take me, Lord, and use me, you know. And so there's a certain degree of that. The older I get, I feel that way because I'm lucky enough to be in a band that's had a 35-year-plus career. 
mm. um, that can play to these amazing fans that are, you know, they have their own subcultures within their widespread panic fandom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing that I would bring up because it's just such a very visceral and easy and recent thing was coming on stage at the mission ballroom for that tunes for tots benefit. Um, after everybody, band, crew, staff, the guys that came down from Pine Ridge, you know, uh, the fans had all been in a pressure cooker of quarantine, fear, Trump's bullying every day. Mm-hmm. You know, this 15-minute COVID update turning into a two-and-a-half-hour daily showcase for his mental instability. Um, and everybody, whether they were alone, some people had to spend so much of that lockdown alone. Mm. Uh, people in large urban areas. I was lucky enough to be in a beautiful place with my wife and our dogs. Uh, everybody was under different kinds of pressure and pressure and heat when that's released, if it's been building up for a long time. Oh yeah. Oh boy. When we walked out on stage at the mission ballroom and started playing that first song and everybody, you know, pushed the pressure release valve on their pressure cooker on their instant pot. <laughs> yeah. their own. And it was over. I mean, like my hair blew back and the feeling <sighs> I got was, it was indescribable. It was joy. It was release. Um, and it was, you know, scientifically, the results were predictable. You know, it was a very exothermic, yeah. you know, explosion. But, uh, you know, mentally and just the, the like thought process. And I'm one of those guys that on my best nights, I'm not thinking about anything mm. while we're playing. I'm not thinking if I get I get in my way if I start thinking. Yeah, yeah. But I had to actually remind myself not to think about how overwhelmingly pleasurable and and gratifying that moment was because Remind i would have yeah go ahead uh, <laughs> go you know ahead. The, res- the response from the audience i'm like i can't think about that right now i got a job to do <laughs> right 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 but the two are so indelibly linked with with jam bands you know i mean yeah. the, the audience is another member of the band and when mm-hmm. they catch on and they've got a hold of something and it becomes what I call like a, like an energy volley, you know, across the barricade between the audience and the stage. It's just like we play something, they react, we react to that reaction and play something. It's different. You know, it just keeps building until it pops. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it kind of popped instantly that night. And it just kept happening over and over again. Interesting. And I can't, you know, I don't know if we played well or not. I don't care. It's in the past. You yeah. know, the people who have tapes can answer that question. Yeah. And they're all going to have a very subjective and individual opinions right. that don't really matter to me or anyone else. You know, it's like, I, it doesn't matter. It felt amazing. Yeah. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I can tell like you're turned on by that show and it's just like kind of that feeling that stays with you of that show. You don't really care what it sounds like. I'm sure you don't even listen back to it. No. I mean, unless we decide <laughs> to put out a live record, then I'm damn sure going to make sure I didn't <laughs> clam the joint up, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Um, <laughs> So on that note, before I let you go, what are the things that we have in future? Like, uh, what are you, what are you looking forward to? You're, 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 you're producing, um, are you, you're working with MC Taylor now? Um, or you did on one particular album. I I find him a really, really compelling artist. He's, he's an amazingly honest person. And I really, I can't say enough about his personal journey that he shared with me, Mm. um, from Southern California to North Carolina to, um, 
this thing he's built as his golden messenger. I'd love to work on a record with him. I've told him, and we have the same manager. I said, look, man, I'll play bass for free for this guy. <laughs> you know, there you go. Um, but the track he did for the Neil Casal record is unbelievable with the space bomb house band out of Richmond, Virginia. Right. Um, just a, a really, really <laughs> evocative piece of music and an interpretation mm-hmm. of a track. That's kind of a very sunny driving song kind of yeah. vibe yeah. into this almost like minor key, you know, tear fest. Right, right. Um, what I've been doing, I, uh, earlier last year, I recorded, uh, farmer Dave and the wizards of the West, mm-hmm. um, an album for curation. It'll be their second record. And that is done being mastered. So they're fighting amongst themselves over which versions go on the record. Cause it's gotta be shorter <laughs> and right. edited versions and what goes on the full length CD. And I'm just like, <laughs> done. <laughs> You're done. You're done. You guys, you guys made it a great record. Uh, <laughs> I've got a, an artist friend, a young fellow named Alex Coford, who has played with Phil Lesh in the, the Terrapin band. He was in the Terrapin family band. Uh, amazing drummer, uh, a voice right out of like mid-70s Laurel Canyon, mm. um, Americana. It, Alex most, Coford? Alex Coford. Who's one a of the drummer most, with a great voice? A drummer with a great voice <laughs> uh, who also is an amazing songwriter. Right on. Um, really a student of Neil. In fact... If you look at the credits on the Highway Butterfly record, he's singing background vocals on probably 15 of the tracks. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, so he's he's amazing. And we just finished the record and uh, kind of being shopped around now. Fantastic. Uh, Widespread Panic has, uh, we've, John Keane, our longtime producer, cleaning out his vault, found some multi-track demos we did in 1990 for the album that became Mom's Kitchen. Wow. Uh, they're not the same recordings. They're recordings we did to keep ourselves, uh, to, you know, just to do something while we're messing around with these contracts the size of phone books, trying yeah, to decide right, right. who to sign with. So these are kind of um, alternative, so, alternative versions in a way? They're totally separate versions. Oh, they're, I they're, love that. And the multi-tracks were viable. We sent the two-inch tapes to Sonic Solutions. They baked them and dumped it into Pro Tools, and John remixed it. And it's fucking fantastic. Wow. It sounds like a completely different band to me because we are playing at breakneck speed, oh, nice. you know, because we're kids and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and, you know, it's got some pr- interesting, uh, it's got Randall Bramlett playing, playing sax uh-huh. on one track. It's got Paige McConnell playing organ oh, on a couple yeah, of tracks. Yeah. 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 Um, so th- that's coming out and I don't know, more shows on the horizon. I'm just, so, uh, so 2022 is going to be a big year for shows I'm really, for you, really you excited i've started a project for i hope so yeah i you know if we can get this uh virus behind us yeah then we're good yeah, Do you yeah. Guys, did you guys already put out dates you have a couple of dates on the calendar i saw there's a couple of dates it's uh you know if we can pull off these shows in napa this coming mm. Labor Day, what is mm-hmm. it, six months from now or whatever? Mm-hmm. Those those poor people who have been holding those tickets for two years, right? You know, right. and it's sort like of just wiping out all those postponed shows first, and then kind of moving forward from there. Right. I I, I feel like once we can make up all the makeup shows, that uh, it's it's truly whatever the new normal is. We're right. we're going to be cruising into it. But I'm excited for what this year has to offer. And like I said, this is I got this studio now and. And I'm working on some projects for myself. Um, I've been producing and playing bass and, and so forth for so long. And 
it's been almost 20 years since I made a record for myself. Mm. And, uh, so I'm excited about that. I've been gathering data, um, working with, uh, John Morgan, Kimok, Steve Kimok's son. Oh. And of course, hope to get Steve and, and, uh, my friend, Elliot Callen, uh, you know, I, I'd like to get everybody I know and love to participate in this thing and, and just see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just, I'm having fun using my studio to make recordings right now. Yeah, absolutely. And why not do that for yourself? That's the best reason, right? Right. <laughs> I should do it more than every 20 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this could be an annual thing. I don't know. How do Panic fans feel about you kind of venturing off and doing this solo stuff? Do you feel a responsibility to get out there for X amount of shows with Panic? I don't feel a responsibility because they're my brothers. And, and like I said, when we were talking well, I mean, about even looking at retirement from a fan thing, perspective, even I think they like it, you know, because I've always, I encouraged Mike Hauser and Todd Nance to get out there and do their own things because whatever they learn and whatever joy they get from that, yeah. they, they bring it back, you know, it right, comes home right. to roost. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, in some cases it's like, I need to make this solo record because I don't feel like this side of my art artistry is being, appreciated or heard in this larger group dynamic mm -hmm. and so they go and they make their solo record and they get that stuff out of their system for a little while and and then they're back and happy to participate in the collaborative spirit that is widespread panic right right um you know for me i mean anyone who knows me knows i'm always dabbling i mean i've played in government mule i've played with jay mascus I i've I've, no you know, I've noticed dave in the doing the research for the show man you are prolific like i said at the beginning I like helping people out and I, I, I'm a really big fan of, of the collaborative spirit and I mm. like to try to apply it to everything I do. And it's, it's not always easy. So, um, you know, getting a little experience collaborating outside of music or being on the other fence side of the fence is being like, okay, my name is going to be on this project that we're collaborating on. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm. Um, every time I do that, I, I pick up something and I get a little bit better at it. And for me, I just want to keep getting better whether it's getting better at being a friend, getting better at being a musician, getting better at supporting other people who I love, yeah. getting better at, at creating systems and foundations that can help people. Mm. It's always a new experience. I've never been on a board before until I was on the board of the Neil Cassell Foundation. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different thing. So, Do you want to talk about that foundation a little bit? Well, it's, it's, you can look it up, Neil Foundation, Neil Cassell Music Foundation mm -hmm. org. Okay, um, and it's it's a two sided venture. One side we try to create funds so that we can support music cares, Nucci Space, Sweet Relief, um, Backline Dot mm -hmm. Care. Yeah, we we want to work with all of them. So uh, the sales of the record and any merchandise we may come up with, and also just uh, amazingly generous donations people have made, help that and then the other side of what we do is as we've talked about very near and dear to my heart putting instruments into the hands of high school kids yeah and the neil casal foundation right now we're starting in the areas where neil grew up which is certain areas in new york and new jersey and so on the board we have an old friend of his who is active in the school system mm -hmm. uh, we have the, i think he's the head of um it's slipping my mind. Uh, what's the kids rock thing? Um, 
Oh, you school, know the, Jack- the school, the school of rock. School of rock. Thing? Yeah, yeah, school yeah, of rock. yeah, yeah. I feel so dumb when I I space something out on oh, a come podcast. On, man. So many but, words are so you got so many words in there. It's imagine so many <laughs> words. Um, but you know, between those two and Gary Waldman and Michelle August and Kevin Calibro from Royal Potato. Oh yeah, I love uh, family. Kevin. He's yeah. the best. Yeah, we have a really great team. Um, Kenny Roby's on there now, helping us do the instruments thing. I've got connections with. You know, Fender, they've been incredibly generous mm. um, given guitars. So yeah, that's yeah. what the Neil Casal Foundation is about. It's about mental health and it's about getting some instruments into kids' hands. And, and like I've said and repeated, these two things for me are indelibly linked. You know, I think that I always had a hard time communicating. And the first way that it was easy for me to communicate was through music and playing music mm. and having friends in a band. And being able to communicate with them and feel accepted by them. That's big deal stuff that we carry into adulthood. So I'm all for the kids and I'm all for like destigmatizing this whole mental health issue. And that's what the Neil Casal Music Foundation is about. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Good luck. Good luck with it. And I'll, Thanks, support, I'll support it here on Roadcase. And, um, uh, Thanks so much for being here, Dave. You're a wonderful human. You've been through so much and you're so thoughtful about um, every direction that you take. And it's just, a, it's, it's, an, it's been an utter pleasure talking to you. You too, Josh. You're a great guy. Thanks for uh, creating a great show. Good Thanks, luck. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much, Dave. All right. Thanks Cheers. Thanks for being here, brother. Cheers. Bye. Okay, that was Dave Schools on Road Case. Was so happy to have Dave here. Thanks so much to you, Dave, for being here on Roadcase. And what a wonderful, wonderful human. You could really feel everything that Dave embodies, uh, love, light, compassion, vulnerability. Um, Dave's willing to talk uh, about anything. We went in some absolutely amazing directions, talking about mental health, suicide prevention, of course, and... Um, just such such important work that Dave does. He's extremely thoughtful, and I really, really admire that about him. Um, musically, love Widespread Panic. Love how Dave plays the bass. Uh, love his passion for live music. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome, uh, one of the more popular bands that he plays in on the side, one of his side projects. And of course, Hardworking Americans, both of which I love. Again, we, uh, we chatted about Neil Casal quite a bit, whom we lost to suicide, sadly, in 2019. And of course, Dave produced and brought together uh, so many amazing artists for the Neil Casal tribute album highway butterfly i encourage everyone to go listen to that whether you're no neil's music or not or were a fan of circles of the sun uh circles around the sun it's an amazing album uh so many great artists are on there mc taylor susan tedeschi Derek's trucks play on a track fruit bats Aaron Lee Tastian, Mapache, Otil Burridge, Burbridge, and of course, Bob Weir. Um, if I forgot some artists on there, uh, just can't list them all, but there are tons of those on that album. It's really, really spectacular. And of course, uh, that is uh, an amazing project that Dave has um, that Dave has put together. And um, hopefully he'll be doing more producing. Uh, you know, we talked about his Space Camp studio and of course, talked about Tunes for Tots, which is the organization 
organization that is linked to widespread panic to support schools in economically challenged areas and bring musical instruments to those that might not ordinarily have the means uh, to provide those for their school programs. And that's just absolutely wonderful. Widespread has a bunch of tour dates in 2022. So check those out on Widespread's website. And God, I just love when Dave talked about coming back out there on at the Mission Ballroom and just saying, uh, telling me that he just had the hair blown back from all the all the energy that everyone throw at him, throw threw at him, and what that felt like, and just to be back out there again. Um, just love Dave. I'm a big widespread panic fan, and it was really an honor and a treat to have him here. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I uh, want to thank everybody for uh, being here for this episode and for your support of Roadcase. And I want to remind you to follow Roadcase on the socials. We're at Roadcase pod on instagram twitter and facebook and uh to subscribe to roadcase on your favorite listening platform uh that way you'll get updates on the latest episodes and we got a lot of great guests coming up in the weeks and months to come so thanks to everyone for being here and i want to send a very very special thank you once again to the one and only dave schools of widespread panic for being here with me on this episode of roadcase Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at Roadcase Pod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. Yeah.